couple of announcements. The February Hazus Hot Zone has been released. You can find it on the Utah.com website. It's also in the FEMA library. Uh, we have a couple of calls this week, late this week. Tomorrow, the Canadian Hazus User Group has a call at 1.30 Eastern Time. And Thursday, the CHUG, which is the Central Hazus User Group, is scheduled to have a call. And April 4th, the Rocky Mountain Hub has a call scheduled for 3 o'clock Eastern Time. I also know that in April, we've got a number of different conferences coming up that I suspect some of you may be attending. And if you are, please consider joining one of our calls in the future and giving us kind of a, an update on the conference that you attended, because uh, obviously not everybody can make it. So we've got the APA conference, MAGIC is coming up, and um, EERI, the GovSec conference. I know there's a few coming. So if you're going to one, um, by all means, take down some notes and see if you can report back to us. That would be helpful. And next month on this call, the uh, topic-specific call will be um, April 30th, which is a Monday. We don't normally have our calls on Monday afternoon, so see if you can um, pay attention to that. Nikolai Todorov from ABS Consulting, who's one of our um, hazardous developers, is going to give a presentation on the state of the hazardous flood model for 2.1. So he's got he's put together a PowerPoint already, and he'll be presenting that next month. So we're, we're lucky that we've got um, the developers really tuned in and helping us. Um, they're always accessible to you, and, and they want to be helpful to you um, with 2.1. Margaret, do you want to give us a bit of an update on 2.1? Sure. Thank you. Um, First of all, I think that we've announced that everybody knows that in the FEMA library, all of the manuals are located, as well as the Getting Started document, which is a more concise document with all of the information that would be easier for getting started, and that's actually what the document's called, Getting Started. And um, the user and technical manuals for each model are also located there. Um, and the other thing we might add about 2.1 right now is that there was an issue with the data set. There were some struggles with the Washington State data set, so we're addressing that, and reproduction has started again of the DVDs, and that particular data set will be sent out to the users for that area. Um, so if you have a need for it and you're not in that area, please do let us know so that we can make sure that you have the updated information. Be glad to provide that for you. Um, other than that, everything is going really smoothly with 2.1. I mentioned on our leadership call that on social media, the developers are answering questions um, through that avenue as well as the help desk. Always goes the help desk first but there's just conversation ongoing, but everybody is paying a lot more attention to social media, so you might look at giving it a try as well. Great. Thanks so much, Margaret. Um, I know we've got a, a really large group. There's over 40 people on the phone right now. Um, has everybody who's on the phone been able to receive uh, 2.1 if you ordered it? Yeah. Okay. I know some people may have experienced the problem because once we recognized there was a bit of a, a problem with the Washington State data, they stopped sending CDs so that they could um, reproduce them correctly and then send them out again. So if you didn't get one and you're waiting, be patient. And if you'd like to send me an email, I'd be happy to check where you are on that list and see if I can help get that out here quickly. So efforts are being made to move that along as as quickly as possible. All right, I think what we'll do is just uh, move ahead and... Um, okay. We got it. So if you're on Adobe Connect, you should be able to see the presentation now, or you can view it as a PDF um, by downloading it from usehouses.com. Frank, do you want to go ahead? Sure, thanks. Uh, hi, everyone. This is Frank Lavelle at Applied Research Associates. Uh, just going to 
touch on uh, some of the highlights of the coastal surge model. Some of you may be familiar with a lot of this information. We uh, had some minor updates for 2.1 and, and some tips and useful uh, information I want to pass along that we've learned since the release of this in 2.0. Um, if we go ahead to slide two, um, just wanted to kind of recap the motivation behind this uh, effort. It was a couple year effort to uh, put in a coastal surge model. And what it does is provide both a, uh, a storm surge, which is the rise in the water caused by the wind pushing in the on the water from a hurricane and the or a nor'easter, but in this case a hurricane, uh, and the also the rise caused by the change in the atmospheric pressure. And also on top of that, we have waves that are created by the wa uh, the wind blowing on on the water surface. The uh, the other key point of this, besides modeling the hazard, was uh, modeling the, uh, the combined wind and flood okay. losses. Hang on just a second, Frank. Whoever's talking in the background, please mute your phone. Phone on hold, but please put your phone on mute. Okay, go ahead, Frank. I'm sorry. No, thanks. Um, so the, again, the second key aspect was, was coming up with a methodology to combine the wind losses, which are generated in the Hazus Hurricane Wind Model, and the flood losses, which are generated in the Hazus Flood Model, to come up with a, an estimate of the combined wind and flood losses uh, without double counting uh, damage to the same building, so that we could we don't want to end up with um, 120 or 150 percent loss. Uh, on a building uh, so that we have uh, built into the model capability to, to combine those losses in a logical manner. If you go ahead to slide three, there's a flow chart that kind of covers the key steps in the process. On the left-hand side are the steps that are taken in the hurricane model, and on the right are the steps in the flood model. Uh, most of these are, are things, especially on the flood side, that you're already familiar with, like bringing in the digital elevation data, uh, delineating the floodplain, running the analysis. The, the key extra steps are on the left is uh, picking your, your surge, coastal surge analysis options. You can either run just the surge or the surge and the waves combined. And then uh, once that's done, you can display the wind-only losses, but if you go to display the combined losses, uh, you'll get a message saying that the combined losses aren't available yet. At that point, you need to step over to the close down the wind model and open up the flood model, and that's where you begin uh, the, the damage portion of the calculations. You, you select coastal surge as you hazard, you import your uh, elevation data, the digital elevation data, you define your scenario. Uh, delineating the floodplain involves uh, doing the transect analysis to get the wave propagation inland, and then it does the flood-only analysis, and then there's another step to run the combined loss analysis. And once that's done, you can dis display the combined losses in either the, the flood model in the right column or back in the hurricane model in the left-hand column. So I'll kind of go over a little bit more detail these uh, steps and then show you an example and then uh, wrap up with some, some helpful hints. Um, if we go to slide four, covers the, um, the hurricane scenario options that you can, uh, that are compatible with the coastal surge capability. Uh, right now, we can do coastal surge analysis on a single um, event scenario, so it doesn't support uh, probabilistic analysis, and it doesn't support uh, some of you may be familiar with the H-Wind, which comes from is a NOAA uh, product that can be imported into Hazus, but that doesn't give us winds over the ocean. It just gives us winds over land, and it doesn't give us the whole time history of the wind. So uh, with H-Wind, we don't have enough information to run a coastal surge scenario. But with the historic events, a user-defined event, uh, a HERAVAC event uh, imported from the uh, HERAVAC FTP site, or just a, a HAZUS uh, hurricane scenario that you've 
imported, say, from another user. Any of those can be used as your uh, to define your scenario for your coastal surge analysis. Uh, one thing new in Hazus 2.1, um, we've limited on the Heravac import option. You can only run coastal surge if it's, if the uh, landfall of the hurricane is predicted to occur within 24 hours of that forecast advisory. And that was uh, at the request of the National Weather Service. They um, it kind of reflects the uncertainty in the forecast, and, and they don't uh, allow any of the HERAVAC, I'm sorry, SLOSH results to be published uh, more than 24 hours before landfall. So we've put that limitation in HAZUS as well at, at their request. Um, so you can see there's uh, four different hurricane scenario types that you can run, uh, a coastal surge. If you go ahead to slide five, um, this shows the uh, the analysis options and the hurricane model. Um, the, the th there's three basic choices under storm surge. You can run it uh, without waves, which is the box that's checked now, no waves. You can run it with just nearshore wave modeling, or you can run it uh, with deep water and nearshore wave models. As you go up, from, from no waves to uh, to full wave modeling, the runtime can get much, much longer, and the, uh, the computational requirements in terms of memory and disk space go up as well. So uh, we that's the main reason. Uh, if if runtime and, and memory requirements weren't a concern, we'd say you should just always run the deep water model with waves, uh, but in practice, um, you know, if you need an answer uh, in, within, you know, 30 minutes or so or, or an hour or less, you're probably going to have to run it without the waves turned on. Um, if you go to slide six, once you've selected your analysis options, the only other piece of information you need to provide is what we call the initial water level. And this is the water level that would have existed along the coast of your study region if the hurricane had not happened. So there's a, a tide component to that, and there's what's called a pre-storm tide anomaly, which is just the difference between um, what's actually being observed and what's predicted from the normal tide charts. Usually the, the tide anomaly is, is fairly small. And even the astronomical tide on a lot of portions of the coast might only be a, a foot or two, especially along the Gulf Coast. Other areas uh, like Georgia, South Carolina, and, and further up in the northeast, those tides can be uh, you know, three, four, or five feet or more. And that can be a significant uh, contributor or mitigating factor in the total surge if it's a low tide or a high tide. So. Um, you know, I would encourage you to uh, think about that, and, and, and uh, we have information in the user manual about how to get tide gauge data. NOAA has a lot of good information on their website on what tides are predicted to be uh, at different, many different locations along the coast, and you should include that in the analysis um, as, a, as kind of a standard part of your analysis. Um, slide seven shows you a uh, graphic or a map of, of all the slosh basins. You'll see there's about 32 of them from Texas all the way up to the northeast uh, coast, and we use almost all of those. There's a there's a fair bit of overlap, and so some of the older uh, ones that are uh, redundant with newer versions have been left out. I think in all we use 28 of the basins. Um, but what you'll see from the overlap is that if you have a study region that um, kind of spans between two basins, they may have the runtime will be impacted by that. The more basins that are um, overlap your study region, the longer the runtime will be. Um, another thing to consider on slide eight, if you do run the wave model, Again, there's two options. You can run uh, just the nearshore wave model. In that case, uh, for this example, say along the Mississippi or Louisiana coast, 
we would run the waves just in the blue area uh, near the coast. Uh, if you select deep water and near water waves, we would first run uh, the wave analysis on the whole red rectangle on a fairly coarse grid. And then the wave conditions from the red analysis would become the boundary conditions for the blue analysis. So uh, you can get slightly higher waves when you run the deep water wave model, but along the coast, uh, we generally don't see a large difference between um, running both the deep and the near shore versus running just the near shore. So uh, while that option's available, um, I would say that in most cases, the nearshore waves are going to be adequate. Uh, and, and again, if you don't have the time or the computing resources, you can even leave off the nearshore waves and get probably an 80 or 90% kind of answer running just the, uh, the, the surge model without the waves. Hey, Frank, hang on one second. Moses, um, you're one slide behind. Thank you, Jamie. I can't see him. <laughs> so that was uh, slide eight. Um, again, just give you a minute to take a look at that. So the red boundary on slide eight, again, is the, the grid that we run the deep water wave model on, and the blue boundary is a much smaller area, is the area that we run the nearshore wave model on. So it can be a big difference in the runtime depending upon which uh, wave uh, modeling option you choose. Uh, if we go ahead to nine, um, once you've started the analysis in the in the hurricane model, it'll run the hurricane winds, the, the storm surge, and and the waves if you choose the waves. And uh, you know, depending upon which analysis each options you choose and how big your study region is, it can take anywhere from you know 10 to 20 minutes in a very quick case to to several hours. On, on a larger region. Uh, but when it's done, you'll get a message in the hurricane model saying it's completed, and you should go on to the flood model. And in, once you're in the flood model, you have to choose a hazard type, and you'll see, uh, in this case on the left, the coastal surge hazard is selected. And then uh, the next step will be to uh, import the uh, digital elevation data and the uh, coastal surge files that are needed will be found and located automatically based on the study region name and opened up for you. This will just, this uh, screen just shows you uh, where those files exist on your computer. Uh, they're called surge.flt and waveheight.flt. Um, if you want, these are grid float files. If you're, you know, an ArcGIS user, you can take those files and add them to any map you want using uh, the grid float file format. Uh, but they'll, if you run it through Hazus and, and you go through this step, they'll automatically be added to your um, flood model map table of contents. Uh, the next step on slide 10. Uh, once you have that information, uh, behind the scenes, uh, the flood model will take the wave height information uh, at the coastline and then propagate that inland using a simplified wave height analysis. Uh, for, uh, this is called WAFIS, or wave height analysis for flood information studies. Uh, this basically propagates the waves inland and takes into account changes in ground elevation. Uh, it does not account for things like dune erosion or, or wave runup, wave regeneration, or wave dissipation. So it's it's, an, it's a it's a very approximate type of analysis that gives you kind of a first order uh, estimate of what the way how the waves are going to behave as they propagate inland from the coast. The main reason we do this is to determine the flood zones. So areas where the waves are greater than three feet, we, those are considered to be V zones. Areas where the waves are between one and a half and three feet are called coastal A zone. And then less than one and a half feet is, is A zone. And, and depending upon whether you're in the A zone or 
the coastal A zone or V zone, we use different damage functions in the flood model because wave height obviously is a big contributor to building damage. So uh, that's the main purpose of getting the wave height into the flood model. It does make a difference also in the storm surge because the waves kind of reinforce the storm surge. It's called, uh, um, in the analysis, of the surge and wave models are coupled together. And the surge also reinforces the waves because the deeper the water is, the higher the waves can be. So um, it's an important uh, factor if you have time to run those waves. It can it can add you know 10 to 20 percent to the to the still water elevation, and it can make the difference between being uh, in an A zone or a V zone, which has a big effect on on loss estimates. If we go to slide 11. Um, we see a list of all the, you know, the, the normal damage estimates from, from the flood model. Uh, all these are produced as well for coastal surge. But the, you know, the, the one highlighted in yellow, the combined wind and flood, is unique to a coastal surge analysis. And this is where we take the wind only and the flood only losses and combine those together to get a combined loss estimate. briefly talk about the methodology for combining the losses. Um, the key is that we do this um, by building um, component or subassembly. And this is important because the flood losses we know start at the foundation and work their way up the building, whereas the wind losses tend to start at the roof and work their way down into the building. So when you have a low level of wind and flood loss, they tend to add directly with one another. But when you have very high wind losses and very high flood losses at the same time, they tend to uh, overlap, so you can't add the two directly together. So the, uh, the methodology takes this into account um, by combining the losses on a sub-assembly level and, and in a way that's um, reflects the way the losses accumulate from the bottom up for flood and from the top down of the building for wind. Uh, if we go to slide 13, I just try to walk through an example here of, of what the outputs look like. Um, this is a, a coastal surge analysis for Hurricane Katrina, and this is for Hancock County in Mississippi. If we go to slide 14, we see the on the left the uh, the blue area is the area that was inundated according to the slosh model, and on the right um, you see the yellow area. Um, this is from field observations where FEMA sent out a survey team and they surveyed all the areas that were inundated along uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast in Hancock County, and that's all the yellow area. So you see that there's uh, a good amount of consistency between the blue area on the left, which comes from the model, and the yellow area on the right, which is the actual observations. It's, it's not in 100% agreement, and, and, uh, but it's, it's actually a pretty good representation of the, uh, the inundation in this area uh, from, from Hurricane Katrina. So starting with that, um, we go on to slide 15. And just here we're presenting the, uh, the building exposure uh, in the different census blocks in Harrison County, I'm sorry, Hancock County. Uh, you see some of the blocks have no color at all. Those are areas where there are no buildings. It's all forested area or, or undeveloped areas. So you can see some of the flooded area is in, in but a large area of the flooding is also in areas where, where there are buildings and, and other development. If we go to 16, again, this is just the inundation limit. So if you can um, flip back and forth between 15 and 16, you can see what areas got inundated. And then if we go to 17, we see the areas where flood losses are actually predicted to have occurred by HAZUS. So all the areas that um, 
are colored in on the lower portion of the county are areas that have flood losses. Uh, using the, uh, the depth grid that's produced by Slosh and Swan. Uh, if we go to slide 18, we see the areas that have wind losses. Uh, on the, this is from the hurricane wind model. All the areas that are yellow, the bright yellow is, is zero on this map, and then all the other areas are where buildings are located have wind losses. And then if we go to slide 19, we see the the combined losses. So the difference between, if you flip back and forth between 18 and 19, you see it gets the top part of the county doesn't change. That's because it's wind only. And then the lower half of the county, you see it gets darker when you go from uh, wind only to combined wind and flood. And that's the, the combined effect of the wind and the flood losses in the parts of the county that did have flooding. Uh, the data for these maps uh, all comes from uh, the loss table shown in, on slide 20. And you can map any of the columns on this slide. You can map the flood loss, the wind loss, or the combined loss. That's how I generated the slides, the maps on the previous slides. You can do the same thing for contents. And then you, um, you can do the same thing for total loss, uh, building plus contents. So this gives you the, the breakdown um, by the type of loss and the census block. And then we have a summary report on slide 21 that gives you the overall losses for the whole study region. It's very similar to the direct economic loss due to wind only or flood only. Uh, in this case, the summary report is showing you the, the combined losses. Um, so the, all that is... Um, there's been some updates since uh, 2.0 came out. Uh, the main update in the, on the wind model side is that we have, um, if you go back to slide 20 for a moment, uh, in the wind model in version 2, you could only, you, could, you had to go to one browser to look at the wind losses and a separate uh, table to look at the combined losses. The, uh, the wind model now has all that information in one place, just like it is in the flood model. So you can look at the building loss due to flood, the building loss due to wind, or the combined losses all in, all in one place. And you can do that either in the wind model or the flood model. Uh, on slide 21, we, we, we took some time to make sure that the formatting and, uh, and and layout of the, of the summary report for both the wind and the flood combined losses uh, are, are similar, and, and that's uh, eliminated a little bit of confusion there in 2.1. If we go to uh, slide 22, um, I have a few uh, suggestions or, or hints from that I collected from the, the hurricane and flood user manuals. I thought I would just kind of put them all here on a couple of slides to kind of be reminders as you, as you do coastal surge analysis. Uh, if you are using a forecast advisory, uh, remember uh, that it won't allow you to do that uh, if the advisory is more than 24 hours before landfall, and that's because of the uncertainty in the forecast when you're more than one day out from landfall. And again, that was at the request of the, the Hurricane Center. Um, secondly, um, when you do do a coastal surge analysis, uh, in the past, um, you know, we've told folks in the hurricane model that you don't have to model the whole hurricane track, uh, and you can save time by just modeling, you know, starting the track uh, near the coast and, and then letting it go inland. Well, when you're running a surge analysis, you, you need to make sure the track extends out beyond the edge of the slosh basin. And if you're running the deep water wave model, it really needs to uh, go all the way out beyond the uh, 60 degrees west longitude. So uh, if you, the waves can generate over a long period, a period of days. Um, so you, you really should model the full track if you're doing uh, deep water wave modeling. And that, again, that adds a lot of time to the analysis. Uh, thirdly, um, and this 
as came up during the technical support. Uh, there is a, an option in the hurricane model uh, to make the model run faster by uh, setting the optimized analysis mode to on. Uh, but to do a surge analysis, you cannot uh, run the optimized analysis, so that has to be off in the analysis menu in the uh, hurricane model. Uh, on slide 23, uh, just a reminder that when you've finished up in the hurricane model and you want to confirm that everything is, uh, has run successfully and it's okay to switch over to the flood model, you can click on the uh, Show Coastal Surge Analysis menu item in the Analysis menu, and it should pop up a dialog that says everything's complete, and you can switch to the flood model to compete uh, to complete the analysis. Um, once you do get into the flood model, you need to uh, and, and run the analysis uh, like you would normally run a flood coastal analysis. After that, after you've done the run, you need to do one extra step, and that's click on this combined wind and flood option in the analysis menu. So you actually do that after you click on run. The run does does the flood losses, and then you have to do this extra step to do the combined wind and flood losses. So uh, just remember to do that to complete the analysis. Uh, on slide 24, uh, we, we tell you where to look in the database if you're interested in pulling the, uh, the combined wind and flood results out of the database. Uh, we're giving you the names of the two key tables, um, HZ surge, FR combined by specific occupancy, and by building type, if you want the losses by general building type. Um, Another reminder, uh, right now we do combine wind and flood loss estimates for the uh, building and the contents. We don't have a combined wind and flood methodology yet for income losses. So as an interim approach there, we would recommend just taking the wind only income losses and the flood only income losses and adding those together as an estimate, an upper bound estimate on the, uh, the combined wind and surge income losses. And then on uh, slide 25, um, because uh, there are a lot of models involved and it's a very computationally intensive, we recommend that you limit your coastal surge study regions to about one county. And in some cases, a single county may even need to be split into two regions. Uh, and one example that I'm familiar with is uh, uh, Miami-Dade County um, has a large number of census blocks, and, has, and we have to split that into two regions, on some, especially on some of our older computers. Um, I know Eric Coughlin at Atkins was doing a study in the uh, Virginia Beach area, and we had to, uh, 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 he had to split that study region into a couple smaller study regions to get the flood model, the coastal surge model to run successfully. Um, some things to, to be on guard for, if you have a large number of census blocks, generally more than four or five or 6,000 census blocks, uh, that's where we start to see problems with memory limitations. If you have the waves, either the near shore, shore or the near shore and deep water waves included in the analysis, um, that um, also tends to create uh, more stress on the system. If you have regions that span multiple slosh basins, uh, basically doubles or triples the amount of work that has to be done, so um, that can be a limiting factor. And we've also seen that Windows XP generally has a harder time managing memory and sharing memory between all the different applications that are open uh, compared to Windows 7. Uh, sometimes we'll see regions that will run on Windows 7 that won't run on Windows XP. And uh, that's just because we have SQL Server running, we have ArcGIS running, we have Slosh running, and we may also have Swan running. It's just, it takes a lot of uh, computer resources to keep all those programs 
open and running at the same time. Um, so to summarize on slide 26, um, the, the coastal surge model it gives you an ability to, to kind of bridge the gap between the hurricane wind and the coastal flood models uh, when doing uh, coastal flooding due to hurricane storm surge. Uh, we use a single consistent hurricane wind field model to drive all the models, so it's driving the surge, the waves, and the wind damage. Uh, we spent a lot of effort modifying Slosh and Swan so that they would all run using the same uh, wind field model that we used for uh, for a long time in the Hazardous Hurricane model. Uh, the surge and wave models are coupled, but the waves are optional. But when you do run the waves, you'll typically get um, higher still water elevations, and you'll get higher um, higher damage as well because you may have uh, V zone instead of A zone uh, damage functions in use when the wave model's turned on. Um, we do apportion the wind losses, uh, the wind and flood losses by subassembly to come up with a combined loss and that, that's added up across all the subassemblies. This make, ensures that we don't double count or end up with damage in excess of 100% of the building value or 100% of the contents value. Uh, and, and just as a reminder, the analysis begins in the hurricane model and then midway through you have to switch over to the flood model and finish the analysis there. But when you're done, you can view the results in either the, the hurricane model or the flood model. You should be looking, you know, see the exact same results in, in either uh, the hurricane model or the flood model. Um, one difference you will see in the flood model, you can see losses um, by pre-firm or post-firm. Uh, in the hurricane model, you just see the total losses. Um, we don't separate them out by pre and post firm because that doesn't really um, apply to, to the to the hurricane model. We don't, we don't have that concept within the hurricane model. But when you're looking at combined pre and post firm, you should see the same answers in the hurricane model and the flood model. So uh, I'd be happy to take questions. Uh, I'm up to the last slide, 27, or we can go back to any of the earlier slides if uh, if I went too quickly on anything or or, or skipped over something you, you're interested in. Thank you. Frank, hey, Frank. You. This is uh, Gene Longenecker with uh, Region 4. How's it going? Oh, great. How are you doing, Gene? Doing great, man. Uh, got a couple of quick questions for you. Uh, you referred to uh, the processing times uh, taking quite a while. Um, I'm just kind of curious, you know, on average, you know, of your entire suite of analyses, what what would you say is a, a reasonable time to run the model, and uh, what's a short time, what's a long time? Um, a, a short time, like this Hancock County one, probably on a on a pretty decent computer can run all the way through end to end, and probably uh, 45 minutes to an hour, counting all the the key clicks in between, um, you know, a, a more uh, urban study region like Miami-Dade with Hurricane Andrew, um, you know, that could t and if you turn on the wave model, um, that can take several hours. Uh, it really just depends on how big the study region is, what computer you're running it on, but that's anywhere from tens of minutes to on the short end to, to maybe 10 hours or more on the long end. Gotcha. On that uh, Hancock County study uh, you guys did, uh, you said that there was a good agreement uh, between uh, observed Katrina storm surge and uh, what uh, the hazardous model was able to put out. Uh, were you guys comparing that to uh, the Hurricane Center slush model for Katrina, or were you comparing that to high water marks, or what was the... the, the uh, the comparison there. Yeah, if we could go back to slide 14 for a minute. Um, yeah, this was just comparing it to the high water marks directly. So uh, it's on the left of slide 14, you see the model slosh output uh, from within Hazus. And then on the right, you see the yellow area is the uh, 
from the FEMA MTAP uh, 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 or the, the, the MAT report, I guess, on the uh, observed inundation area. So, um, and the depths along the coastline, you know, were, uh, you know, the actual observations varied quite a bit, but, you know, the, generally the, the model depths along the coast were in the, in the low 20s of feet. So maybe not quite as high, but I think this analysis we did with the, the wave model turned off. So if you'd run it with the waves turned on, I think you would have had pretty, you would have pretty good agreement along the, at the coast as well. Gotcha. Uh, did you guys compare at all to uh, the Hurricane Center slosh model uh, to see if there's uh, you know an improvement on uh, their forecast model versus what uh, Hazus was able to do? We, um, in the, the Hurricane Technical Manual, has uh, a really large number of comparisons for five hurricanes. I think we looked at Andrew, Isabel, Katrina, Ike, and Ivan, I think, was the other one. And we have yeah very detailed comparisons. Uh, basically, we, we ran the model with the original Winfield model. And then we ran it again, which is basically the the off-the-shelf slosh model. And then we ran it again after we coupled in Swan and and put in the Hazus Winfield model. And what we found was was a an a, a, a pretty consistent improvement in the uh, the modeled uh, depths of flooding and the modeled wave heights compared to the observations that we had for each of those hurricanes after we did the coupling and we updated the Winfield model. And we've provided that information back to the Hurricane Center, and I actually haven't spoken to Jamie Rome in a while, but, you know, when he was on uh, part of the review process and uh, was interested in, in, you know, having an opportunity to work with the model and and uh, maybe uh, consider, you know, bringing it into their operational workflow at some point down the road. As a standalone outside of, of houses. Uh, sure. One more question for me, and I'll turn it over to everybody else. Um, so, with those uh, slosh basins, uh, the Hurricane Center is updating those on a different uh, schedule than I would imagine that the uh, Hazus version of the slosh basins are updated. Uh, are there any differences between those basins uh, in particular, and what kind of updates can we expect for Hazus in terms of basins? Uh, the basins that are in Hazus are, are the basins that existed, I'd say, that, or that were available, I guess, around the beginning of 2010 when we when we did our uh, methodology work. And at this point, I don't know what the schedule would be for updating those basins. Uh, I know they were working on a lot of updates in Florida. Um, yeah, there were some pretty significant differences between the old basins and the new basins down there. Uh, that's a good point. I think we, you know, I should, I'll certainly uh, pass that along. Um, or is, those those must be finished now, so uh, that might be something that we want to look at um, updating. Are you? Is there a report that kind of summarizes what the changes were? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, some of it's officially written up and some of it's uh, unofficially uh, in process right now. But uh, the Hurricane Center is uh, going through, you know, a, a number of uh, basin revisions with uh, newly collected LIDAR, um, you know, and really improving uh, the, the quality of the slosh outputs that they've got. But yeah, if you can point me to any uh, publications, formal or informal, on that, uh, I'd like to pass that along to the headquarters and kind of make, you know, I think if we can show that there's a significant difference, then uh, I think that'll help get this moved up on the priority list. Certainly. That's something uh, Jamie Rome and the search team are well aware of, too, if that uh, happens to come up in a discussion before or otherwise, anyway. Yeah, we're unfortunately, we're not meeting as a group anymore now that the work is done, so it's, uh, I'll have to reach out to him or, if, again, if you know of anything, uh, if you have anything, uh, if you could forward to me, I'd appreciate it, but I'll, I'll it. certainly make a note to, to contact Jamie. Thank you.
Gene, this is Nikolai. Um, one one, one uh, detail that you probably should know is that um, the Swan model um, produces really coarse uh, wave heights, so we do take the transects from further out and use the WAFIS to propagate them inland. The original concept was to use the Swan and uh, add it or subtract it depending on the uh, direction, but um, the pixels were just uh, larger, right, Frank? Pretty large and very inaccurate come uh, close to shoreline. Yeah, is that. The grids are very coarse, and actually they're, the other big problem is that um, to, to really do that, there's really no good model, even you know, that's an, an acknowledged shortcoming even on the flood information studies. There really aren't any good models out there yet for doing uh, wave propagation over land. Uh, what they found in Hurricane Ike was that the waves dissipated much quicker than um, uh, as you go inland than they, uh, so even the office approach would have suggested. That's why we turned off the uh, wave regeneration in office because we found that it was over-predicting uh, for Hurricane Ike. So we basically uh, allow the depth-limited waves to, to dissipate uh, fairly quickly as they go inland, and, and that just doesn't happen in Swan on the kind of grid that we're running. It's, it's way too coarse. This is Steve Eberbach with Baker. Thanks very Michael Baker, thanks very much for the presentation. I wondered, I kind of had a follow-up question to that. I saw in the PowerPoint that it said a, a simplified version of WAFUS is used for inshore waves. So kind of wondered, is it is that essentially is it what you said, where there's a depth-limited wave calculation as you as you go inland and and that's it, or is there some representation of land cover and, and other elevation data in there and, has it, and how HAZIS does it? It's, it's in a flood technical manual, yeah, you're, it's uh, depth-limited. With, um, there's a simple formula that you can find under, um, uh, let's see, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, under the coastal hazard in, the, in Chapter 4 of the Flood Technical Manual. Technical manual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, main, the main, the key point is that we don't, if the, uh, a lot of times the, the the, the, you'll have like a dune near the coast and the depth will go get very small and then the depth will increase again on the other side of the dune. And what we found was that if we use the uh, office approach, the waves would start to regenerate and that's not what they were seeing in the observations from Hurricane Ike. So uh, we took the regeneration out because it was causing uh, overestimates. So, once it becomes depth limited, we don't allow it to grow again. So that's probably the main uh, change between the office approach. That and and to, at the same time, we don't do the dissipation because we really don't have good land use land cover data available in HAZUS that kind of takes into account all the uh, obstructions that can that can cause the waves to dissipate. So. It is fairly simplified, um, but it it seems at least for a couple of the few data points that we're able to to look at, it seemed to do a better job than than even the WAFIS did when we ran the the plain WAFIS by itself. Uh, so hey, this is Gene again. I got another quick question, uh, following up on the, the water depth, uh, particularly in Hancock County. Some of those water depths from uh, Katrina, in particular, were uh, you know, near. 34, 35 feet with waves. Uh, the depth damage functions uh, are cut off at 24 feet. So, uh, if we are, if we're generating a slosh depth grid and has us that's you know giving uh, significant uh, water depths that are greater than the damage functions, how do we account for that? Um, the flood model, um, yes, you, you, you're correct, Gene. The flood model stops at 24. And anything above 24 is treated as 24. So uh, everything is based uh, on up to 24 flood of uh, uh, depth of flooding in the flood model. So. Um,
I got you, Nikolai. Uh, have we uh, considered, you know, some of the uh, damage functions that are being developed for tsunami in that sense? Because those uh, those depths go up a, a, a lot greater. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Tsunami is still uh, in the modeling stage. I'm not sure if the the uh, whole core would have to change, but if if it has to be, we'll, we'll do it. So bottom line is this is the way it is. Uh, for most analysis, it's up to 24, except for vehicles, which stops at 13 and a half for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, uh, if if the tsunami uh, provides any any uh, insight of needing depths greater, including velocity and so on, that that would have to be rectified in the tsunami model. Right on. Thanks, Nikolai. Welcome. You have have to do that carefully, there, Gene, because the tsunami has a a much different kind of wave character to it, so it may not be able to use that directly. Sure, that was just, uh, you know, uh, an analogy at, at the very least. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the greater water depths and the, the greater damage functions. And uh, j just one comment on the wave regeneration. That's, uh, as Frank mentioned, that's, uh, it just depends on a, on a short type. Uh, this could be right on by not having regeneration on uh, frontal dunes, but in case of uh, the shoreline being in front of a barrier island and having a bay behind it, that may underestimate it a little bit, but still, at the time, we decided to do it this way. And Nick, I had a question. Do we, if we have a bay, don't we have a, do we have a separate set of transects for the next shoreline? No, there's only one shoreline, Frank. Okay. All right, gentlemen. Well, it is 4 o'clock, so I don't want to hold you past the hour. Um, Frank, thank you so much for putting this presentation together. You've had over 40 people on the phone for the entire hour, and I really appreciate uh, your effort. And Nikolai and Jean, thanks for coming on and helping with the presentation. And Moses, thanks for helping us out in a pinch. Um, so we'll wrap it up now. And if you guys have other questions that you didn't get answered, feel free to send me an email and I'll pass those on. And next month we'll listen to a presentation uh, by Nikolai regarding the flood model. All right, everyone. Take care. Thank you.